brethren throughout our Western world, as we call it, coming on down through the Greco-Roman civilization and uh, combining with the Judeo-Christian ideas, which are now being rapidly, of course, scuttled. We're getting back to the Greco-Roman ideas, I think, more than the Judeo-Christian. But the family, as you know, and the idea of family is under attack. Satan is trying to do everything he can to scuttle the family. The Spanish Parliament, even one of the most Catholic nations on earth, has now voted to approve same-sex marriage. The Canadian Parliament has done the same, and it's yet to be signed by the governor, I guess, or maybe it has been by today, but apparently that's going to affect in an area of our northern neighbor right up here. There's increasing pressure to allow the homosexuals to marry each other. There's increasing pressure of all kinds, as you know, to say family is not one man and one woman. Family might be three men and one woman, or two men and five women, or all kinds of different arrangements of people calling themselves family. If you haven't read about it, that's been out on the news a lot. It's not my idea. It's all over. So those of you who don't read widely, that is being very, very heavily pushed by the liberals in our society. And we need to understand the family, the whole idea of family is under attack. Men now are trying to leave God out of everything. He's not supposed to have anything to do with family. He's not supposed to have anything to do with human life. And so these women talk about women having control of their bodies, of course, and women's right. They talk about women's right. You know what they're saying. It's women's right to what? Women's right to choose or women's right to murder? Frankly, it's the latter. Do women have a right to murder a human being? And when you read the Bible, you know that God already considers them human beings in their mother's womb. And God talks about through some of his prophets, when you formed me, you knew me before I was born, and all those statements throughout the Bible that indicate that. Is it women's right to choose or women's right to murder? Our society is completely cutting God out of everything. I'm not blaming women for all this. A lot of men are going along with this, as you know, very, very heavily. They don't want to take responsibility for their actions. They want women, men and women to play bunny rabbits and be able to have all kinds of sexual experiences without following through and having children, which is the natural result. And so they have these ways of cutting God and God's plan and God's purpose out of the picture. So they can have immediate gratification for everything they want. And so the idea of gay marriage is coming along. Marriage between men and women, or men and men, I should say, and women and women, and different groups and different types of approach to everything. So we're truly at the end of an age. And when you read about our society becoming like the days of Noah, that is exactly what's happening. Our Creator wants, of course, all of us, especially in God's church, to build strong families. I think you know that. And we need to think about that, brethren. We need to get back to that from time to time. We are to understand what that is all about. We need to understand how important it is as this society is swirling around us, going in the other direction, influencing us to some extent, some of us, influencing our children, influencing our grandchildren to where they don't know what end is up. They can't tell the difference. I had to preach constantly to the kids I had in college at Big Sandy. The last three years I was teaching was over in Big Sandy, warning them about that. They were constantly being bombarded and bombarded about homosexuals. We're all the same. We're all the same. 
and you're born a homosexual, they're saying. No, you're not. God has not caused you to be born a child molester. God has not caused you to be born a murderer. God has not caused you to be born anything, anything, any way, any time that is contrary to His laws. He makes that very clear in the Bible in many, many different statements. You may be inclined to be fat because of your parents, but you can work on that and greatly modify that tendency. You may be inclined to be very small or skinny because of your parents. You may be inclined to be an alcoholic because of the parental genes, actually the tendency, right in your body, plus the example. But again, you can overcome that through the help of God's Spirit. You may be inclined because of your family. Some families are known to have explosive tempers. They just blow up. And part of it is inherited genes, perhaps. Part of it is just the family atmosphere. Are you predestined to blow up and become a murderer or criminal? Of course not. You may be, have tendencies where you might be more likely to be a homosexual than others, but you can control that to the help of the Spirit of God just like you can control anything else. And one of the greatest, most damnable lies of recent years by Satan the devil, the father of liars, is that you were born to be a homosexual. And you are not. And I'm saying that not just for you brethren here, but all you young people around the world who are going to hear this in three to five weeks as this tape gets out. There have been many articles on that. Dr. Dobson, who does a very fine job of trying to preserve the family in his own way, has got material on that. There are lots of psychologists, lots of doctors, lots of experts who acknowledge you don't have that gene. There is no homosexual gene. And they prove that. But these homosexuals are trying to push and push and push that agenda. Just like they're trying to push President Bush right now with all their might into appointing someone to the Supreme Court to take Sandra Day O'Connor's place who will be pro-abortion and want to continue the practice of murdering Millions of young human beings. And that is wrong. That's going to be a big fight in our society. And God is watching. What kind of society are we? Do we deserve the great tribulation? What kind of society are we become? Well, we in God's church know better than a lot of that stuff, but we do need to examine it and understand it from God's point of view. Let's get this picture from God about building strong families from God's point of view. And let's turn back to Genesis, if you would, to the very beginning. Mr. Herbert Armstrong went, often went back to the very beginning, and I want to do the same thing. Get a little bit of tea here. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, as we've explained to you so often, in the beginning, Elohim, as the Hebrew word is, created the heavens and the earth. Elohim is a uniplural noun. It means more than one. It's plural. It means more than one. It's a word like church or like family. God was composed of more than one person, as we know. In verse 26, God said, Let us, not me, let us make man in our image. More than one person in the family of God from the very beginning. The one whom we today call the Father and the one whom we today call the Son. Back then, they were simply called God or Yahweh, and the Word, the Logos, the spokesman, the second personality in the God family. And, of course, the word Yahweh was used often throughout the Old Testament to designate either one. 
that could be, often was used definitely to designate God the Father and also God the Son as we know Him today. Let us, a family, two different beings, make man in our image according to our likeness and let them have dominion. So from the beginning, God gave man dominion, rule, government. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. That was something God did at the very beginning. And, of course, you know the story over in chapter 2, verse 18. The eternal God said, it's not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper comparable to him of his own level of existence. Adam was not able to talk to and visit with and share his plans and hopes and dreams, his ups and downs, his hurts, his frustrations, and his triumphs with a cow. All he would get in return was, moo! <laughs> that wouldn't be very exciting. God created a human being to share with him his life, his hopes, his dreams, everything about him, and also to help him reproduce, because God's plan is for a family to reproduce. And one man and another man cannot reproduce. <laughs> and one woman and another woman cannot reproduce. And the only way they could have children is through some perverted individual donating his semen and then they get a baby out of a test tube into some woman who donates that and all kinds of perverted things that are not God's way at all. And the people from the beginning realize it's not what is natural. It's not really their child in a normal way whatsoever. So at any rate, God made a helper for a man. And so the rib that God had taken from the man, verse 22, he made into a woman and he brought her to the man. And Adam said, this is verse 23, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called Isha in the Hebrew. Isha, I-S-H-A-H. Isha, for she was taken out of Ish. Isha means from Ish. God made the man, and then God made the woman right out of the man. So the man was told that, could see that, could understand that. His creator, whom he see, had all power, and he did that that way. We can say, oh, that's just a poem. No, it's not. I'm quite positive God did it that way. That's what he says, and God is not a liar. He took the woman right out of the man. So, of course, then the man knew that that was part of him. Totally one, the same level of existence. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. There are no more two, but one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. And they should not have been. They were one flesh. And that's what God intended from the beginning. A man and a woman make a family. A man and a woman make a marriage. No other way. That was the beginning. That's the way God did it, and the way it's the way God intended it to be, very, very obviously. Going back into Genesis 12, we find here the one who's later called the father of the faithful being dealt with. Genesis 12, the eternal had said to Abram, Genesis 12, verse 1, Get you out of your country from your kindred, from your father's house, to a land I'll show you, and I will make of you a great nation. And he says at the end here, and verse 4, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. How could he do that through another man? Well, of course, he didn't. He did it through Sarah. He did it through Sarah, Abram's wife. He did not do it through perversion. 
I will make of you a great nation. God's whole plan has constantly revolved about a family, building a family. One man, one woman, and then one man often becoming a great nation by reproducing, just as Abraham had Isaac, and Isaac had Israel, and Israel had twelve sons. And those sons we called the twelve tribes, or twelve nations of Israel, coming right out from the loins of our father Jacob, bearing his nature, bearing his name. One family, and a large family. And then they have become the peoples of northwestern Europe, the British Isles, the English-speaking peoples around the earth, Great Britain, Canada, the United States, Australia, New Zealand, and the English-speaking people of South Africa. One nation, one family coming right on out, or many nations, I should say, through this one man. A family become great. That's the beginning of what God did. He could have done it a different way, but He did not. From the very beginning, He worked through families. Now, going back to uh, Genesis 17 at this point, Genesis chapter 17, notice here, when Abram was 90 years old, And 9, 99, verse 1, the Eternal appeared to Abram and said, I am El Shaddai, God Almighty. Walk before me, or as we say, walk with God. Walk with me and be blameless, not perfect, but above reproach. And I will make my covenant between you and me and multiply you exceedingly. And he fell on his face and God said, As for me, my covenant is with you and you shall become a father of many nations. And so he went on to explain how he used to be a father of many nations, a father, a family, entire nations proceeding from him. That was God's way of doing things. In Genesis 18, turn to Genesis 18 now, if you would, brethren, beginning in verse 16. Then the men arose. Here was the one who became Jesus, the spokesman on the way with two angels to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham had entertained them there. Then the men arose from there and looked toward Sodom. And Abraham went with them to send them on the way. And the ever-living one said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am doing? Since Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation. Yes, through his wife. He was to become a great and mighty nation. Producing Isaac. And Isaac then was to produce Jacob. And Jacob then would have the twelve sons. And those twelve would have more children. And finally, hundreds of children, thousands of children, millions and hundreds of millions of children coming down from Jacob. For I have known him in order that he may command his children and his household after him. And they shall keep the way, as a way of God, they shall keep the way of the eternal to do righteousness and justice that the eternal may bring to Abraham what he's spoken to him. And so God, again, worked through Abraham, and he was then to command his household after him as the head of the family. The man was made the head of the family from the beginning. He had the responsibility. He had the extra physical strength, the extra mental and emotional strength, if he would use it, to lead. Not to domineer, but to lead. And God looked on Abraham and told him to do that. And God's servants always, of course, were supposed to do that. None of them did it perfectly, but they did it to some extent if they were faithful servants of God. Going back to Genesis 26, verse 5. Genesis chapter 26, verse 5. It says here, 
it says, uh, well, I'm, let's go to start at verse 4. He told Isaac, I will make your descendants. Or he said, I, the oath which I swore to Abram, your father. He's talking here in verse 3. And I will make your descendants multiply as the stars of heaven. And I will give your descendants all these lands. And, and uh, in your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Now, that's dual when you understand it. Sort of the main emphasis is on Jesus Christ. But we know through Abraham's seed in the sense of all these nations, other nations have been blessed too because the Israelitish nations have as they were able to lead the various parts of the world, help them, bless them. Who sent the 600 ships to India several years ago to keep them from starving? Who are the main ones that came into the tsunami disaster more recently with the most money and the most equipment and the most everything? The United States and the British descended peoples from Australia and Britain itself and elsewhere. All over the earth it's been that way. Especially the descendants of Joseph have been those people. And so he told them he was to bless them because Abraham, the reason is because Abraham obeyed my voice, kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. And so Abraham had a family. And Abraham set that overall example. And that's why later we find Abraham was called not one of three or four men living together in a house, calling themselves a family. <laughs> but Abraham and his wife, a family, were serving God. And because of the way they did it, Abraham and Sarah, God called Abraham the father of the faithful. Let's turn back, if you would, to Romans now. Turn to the book of Romans in your New Testament. And here we'll see this and review this briefly. God is concerned with family and with fathers and with mothers. Paul writes, Romans chapter 4, Romans chapter 4, verse 1. What then shall we say that Abraham, our father, was, has found according to the flesh? Abraham, our father, he's called a number of times in this chapter the father and father of those who are faithful, and in that general sense, the father of the faithful. They often summarize it that way. And verse 11, he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith, which he had while still uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all those who believe. He then was the father of the faithful, though they were are not circumcised, that righteousness might be imputed through them also. And the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, but who also walk in the steps of the faith, which our father Abraham had while still uncircumcised. In other words, they might be uncircumcised physically. They would, as we know from other scriptures, be circumcised spiritually. All of us, men and women, and people of other races, other backgrounds, spiritually circumcised through conversion. For the promise that he would be heir of the world, how come that worked out? Because God was working through a family and working through a father, a father, Abraham. He was to be heir of the world, was not to Abraham or his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. And, of course, he goes on to show again in verse uh, uh, 16, it was to be to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. Living faith, faith that would do what God said. So, God was building a spiritual family as well as his physical family through Abraham. And the spiritual family eventually became not just the nation of Israel, but God's church. 
And we're all part of that enlarged family. And yet the physical is the type of the spiritual. And since there's a family on three levels, we have the physical family of a man and woman and children in this life. We have the spiritual enlargement of that in the church of God. And then when we're all born of the Spirit, become spirit beings, we become full members of the family of God, born of God, composed of the Holy Spirit, where God literally has impregnated us, put His very seed in us, as it says back in Corinthians, put His very nature in us. We're not adopted by God. We come right out from God. And through the Holy Spirit, we have His nature. And therefore, He is building a real family, not a pseudo-family. And God is very concerned with the family and the preservation of the family and all that it means to us, to our families, to our loved ones, to our society, our entire Western civilization, and eventually to God's plan and God's very purpose on the earth in making man in His image to ultimately become members of His family. Turn back to Genesis chapter 20, if you would. Genesis 20. Here we find given, as you know, the Ten Commandments. God had sent thunder and lightning and shook them literally with these powerful demonstrations of His awesome power. And then, chapter 20, verse 1, God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Eternal, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. Who was this who said that? Of course, it was God. But it was God the Father speaking through Jesus Christ. Christ was the Word. Christ was the Logos. Christ was the spokesman of the Old Testament. Christ is the one who gave the Sabbath back here. Christ is the one who gave the Ten Commandments. Oh, the world doesn't like to hear about that <laughs> if they recognize fully this truth, yet they indirectly admit it, but they sure don't like to tie those two things together. You know, Christ being the God of the Old Testament and Christ giving the law. That blows their minds because they want to think those laws are done away with. You'll have no other gods before me. Then he tells them not to have any uh, carved image, not to take his name in vain, to remember the Sabbath and keep it holy, because he made it holy. And in verse 12, Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long upon the land which the eternal your God is giving you. So here we have a law directly designed to protect the family. Two of the ten laws of God the ten words, the ten great statements directly to do, have directly to do with the family. And all the others have to do with the two when you understand it. But two of them directly. So you are to honor your father and your mother. To build on that attitude of family. To build that deep respect for those who created you physically. Just as you ought to have that profound respect for the one who ultimately created all human life. And put us on this earth. God the Father. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. Verse 14, and that again directly deals with the family. You shall not commit adultery. Jesus magnified that in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, you've heard was said, you'll not commit adultery. I say, you're not to look on a woman to lust after her. Or you've committed adultery with her already in your heart, in your attitude. That very attitude begins to cause you to be more susceptible to violating that command, to going into another woman, to breaking down the family relationship, to breaking down that special sacred trust 
that binding quality that God intended to be there, a relationship of stability, a relationship of security, where people knew they were under the death penalty if they broke that covenant they made before God. Very important to God. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal or bear false witness. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. So again, the final commandment is talking about your family too, to that extent. The spirit of the law. You're not to look on another man's wife or another woman's husband or on some unmarried person for that matter, on anyone who is not your mate. You're not to look on them with that kind of attitude. They do not belong to you and you do not belong to them. You're to stay away and you're to have that deep, profound covenant relationship in your mind that you belong to this other human being. You're made one flesh before God. And that's a beautiful relationship, a wonderful relationship, because it pictures the relationship between Jesus Christ and the church. So God wants us to think that way and to have his mind. So he had two laws directly to do with the family. The law against covetousness certainly partly has to do with the family as well. And that went all the laws, of course, against murder and lying and stealing. All those, in a sense, protect the home and protect the family, the place where the family lives and all that the family has when you understand it. And the Old Testament is full of examples of that. Then you go to Malachi, if you would, brethren. Let's turn to Malachi chapter three, uh, 2 here. Malachi, the last book in the Old Testament, Malachi chapter 2. And he's berating Israel. Malachi is kind of a, a, kind of a uh, uh, book that kind of has to do with the Old and the New Testament. It has is kind of a... I'm trying to think of the right word here, cover over book, you know, but a book. But anyway, it, it, it covers both the Old and the New Testament, kind of lapses over into both and, and looks forward to the New Testament. But he's condemning ancient Israel and ancient Judah, and he condemns them for having other gods and idols. And then he says, verse 13, this is the second thing you do. This is the second thing, Malachi 2, verse 13. You cover the altar of the eternal with tears, with weeping and crying. So he does not regard the offering anymore, nor does he receive it with goodwill from your hands. Yet you say, for what reason? What's wrong, God? Why aren't you honoring us for giving all these animals? Because the eternal has been witness between you and the wife of your youth. Most of us married a wife when we were young. Some few of us remarried, but even then, most of us who did that married maybe a second time when we were in our 40s or 50s. We weren't 70 or 90 yet. But between the wife of your youth, with whom you have dealt treacherously, yet she is your companion and your wife by covenant. You see, when you marry, and in God's church, you kneel down and you make a covenant with this other person before your Creator bowing, promising that you will stay with this person unto death do you part, except for those very through, in fact, three limited reasons why people might divorce and remarry. Most of you know what they are. One of them is sexual infidelity, pornea, not just simple adultery, but repeated sexual violation, either fornication or adultery. And the other, of course, is desertion by the unconverted mate, and another one would be, uh, of course, just plain lying when you vow. Some people vow, but yet their whole life shows they didn't really mean it. I've explained how that is another reason when you understand it. 
if that can be proved. It shouldn't be proved, of course. We used to have, I think I've given the example of, I, I, I gave this, this name I came up with, and uh, my, one of my wife's, I mean, my mother's friends was named Gertrude, and then this Gertrude comes up to me and says, well, I'm the one you're talking about. She was kidding me, of course, but I use Gertrude because it's a seldom used name. Well, in fact, two of my mother's best friends was Gert. One was Gertrude uh, uh, Troutman, later English, and then uh, uh, Gertrude uh, someone else. Well, anyway, let's say Gertrude. We'll pick on Gertrude again. No Gertrude's here in this congregation today, I guess. But let's say this Gertrude was out in San Francisco. And after the either the Korean or the Vietnam War, I think it was the Vietnamese War, when this came out and they had a series of articles in the Los Angeles Times, they found out that the government, to their computers finally clicking in, was able to check up on all the allotment checks. And Gertrude, at such and such E Street in San Francisco, was getting 36, up in the high 30s, 36 or 38 allotment checks. Wow! How come she did? She marry 36 or 8 men? Yes. <laughs> she would marry Harry. Here's this young boy coming through from the farms in Iowa. He's on the way to be shipped out and shot at. He's kind of worried and scared, and he wants to sort of experiment. So Gertrude meets him at the bar and starts kissing on him and says, Come on, come on, my place. So he does. And so then she marries him, you know, rushes somewhere and marries him. Then she gets his allotment check. Then she waves, Bye-bye, Harry. He ships out under the Golden Gate. She rushes back to the bar, and she marries George. And then she marries Henry. Then she marries Jim. Then she marries John. Then she marries Jack. Then she marries, if you follow me, 37 allotment checks. Which one was Gertrude really married to? I think you can figure that out. Nobody. She did not intend to marry anyone. There are men who will take advantage of middle-aged women. They find out through the newspapers where some wealthy woman has lost her husband and then they wait a few months discreetly, save these clippings, and then they begin to somehow get acquainted with her. They're very slick. They're very handsome, nice-looking men, often a lot of good manners, and they treat her like a queen and get her to marry them. And then after a month or two or five, whatever it is, when things are established and she's signed over all of her money, then they say, he, he tells her, well, I've got to, uh, uh, honey, I, you know how much I love you. And he's been so kind, he opens the door, he kisses her hand, he does everything. But I've got to go see my aging mother, and she's about to die. So let me go, I'll just be gone a few days. So he goes off, and after two weeks or a week or whatever, she gets concerned. Then she goes to the authorities, and they found out that he's taken a plane to Switzerland with all her money. Oh, and then he does that a little bit later, then a little bit later. This, the various ways where people do this, those are simplistic but other people marry individuals where they never intend to marry. And we ministers have to get in and try to help sort that out if that's the case. But if that's the case, obviously the people never intended to marry. Only three reasons that have to be very strictly proved. But except that, you're not to ever marry and then divorce, and certainly not divorce and remarry in God's church if you fear God. And God will not let you do that and let you in His kingdom, as a matter of fact. And God describes this, his distaste for that. He says, you have, uh, I've been witness between you and the wife of your youth with whom you have dealt treacherously. She's your companion and your wife by covenant. But did he not make them one? God made them one, one flesh, one unit. And God intended they stay that way. 
having a remnant of the Spirit. And why one? Why? Because he seeks godly offspring. Godly offspring are not going to come when three men live with two women or one man with five women or two men live together and adopt a couple of girls. Can you imagine that? Or three women live together and adopt two boys. You're not getting the balance. You're not getting a real family. You're simply getting confusion and often sexual perversion and physical abuse and perhaps sexual abuse down the line. No, God wants godly offspring. Therefore, take heed to your spirit and let none deal treacherously against the wife of his youth. For the eternal God of Israel says that he hates divorce. Brethren, God hates divorce. And I hope all of you do too. Some of you have been divorced in the past, but I hope that you hate it anyway. It's a terrible thing. If you had to go through it for some right reason, I think you realize how awful it is. It's not something that ought to be taken lightly. It's not something that ought to be taken even semi-lightly. It's something that ought to be only done under extreme circumstances. Because God hates divorce. For it covers one's garment with violence. There's often screaming and crying and fighting and sometimes attitudes of hate and murder involved. Says the Eternal, Therefore take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. Do not deal treacherously against your mate. Your attitude of looking around at other men, looking around at other women, if you're married, shows God the attitude you may have toward Him. You may play the harlot against God Himself if you play the harlot, so to speak, against your wife or against your husband in marriage. God wants us to be solid. God wants us to be established. God is building a family. And He's not going to build that family out of a people who are kind of wishy-washy and well, they're in and they're out. And they change things around here and there and water things down. Well, it didn't work out, so we just got divorced. I came back from two and a half years in Great Britain back in the 1970s. And I'd been back two or three times in between on special trips, but I didn't know all the news, just coming back for a week or two at a time. And when I got back, I was astonished that several of the leading families that I'd known that I thought were good families were divorced. And I could not understand it. Totally, although I partly understood it because they obviously were very weak and I'd sensed that in some of them before. And I also knew that the liberals were in charge pretty much. I'd been threatened with my job. And the one young man said, if you tell Mr. Armstrong about me and my problems, your history, Rod, your whole career is at stake and you'd better understand that. And this individual was taking over the church, watering everything down his father was teaching continually for years. And so we found that the liberals were taking over. And the students realized that. Instead of going to the afternoon service, as we used to arrange for them to do, they began to attend the morning service in the auditorium. You see, if they had an afternoon service, they would have a Bible study and be all dressed up in their Sabbath wear and take a young lady down to Bible study and sit together and visit afterward and maybe go to bed a little later and then sleep a little later, being kids and having lost sleep through the week, which they often did. They'd sleep in on the Sabbath. So Saturday morning was covered, if you follow it. they go to church in the afternoon. But then this began to creep in, and they began to go to church in the morning. And right at noon, right after the morning service, they would rush up to the dorm, change quickly into their blue jeans or their swimming suits, hit the road, and they'd be down at Huntington Beach, Venice Beach, all the other beaches, and they'd be playing 
rock music and playing volleyball and drinking beer like all the other kids from UCLA and you know, all the other colleges in the area. The whole thing was going down. That's why Mr. Armstrong closed the college in night, the spring of 1978 and then allowed some of us to reopen it a few months later after the offending individual was finally put out. But things had been watered down during that time. And so I came back to, let's say, Joanne. That's not her name. We'll call her Joanne. And I found that she had divorced her husband, Jack, whose name was not Jack. <laughs> okay. But I said, Joanne, how come, you married, how come you divorced Jack? And she said, oh, we, we just weren't compatible. I said, well, did he have a, an affair? Some other, no. Did he get drunk? No. Did he beat you? No. Did, what did he do? Well, we just weren't compatible. Oh, that's interesting. After about 20 years of marriage and three children, you suddenly decided you're not compatible. How convenient during the liberal years. So this was just one example of many when the liberals were in charge and they began to water down the whole concept of marriage being a binding institution. When all this began to come out, Mr. Herbert Armstrong was horrified. He'd been away on his trips. He didn't fully realize how bad it was getting. But at any rate, that is not God's way. God hates divorce. God does not want us to take divorce lightly. We're to make a profound commitment to share our lives, our resources, our time, our talents, our plans and hopes and dreams, our future with another human being of the opposite sex, not the same sex. And make a covenant before God that binds us together till death does us part. It's called marriage. It's called home. It's called family. And God is building a family. And God wants us to learn those lessons in our physical family. That's so important to God. So God urgently tells us here and in many other places those of us who read His Word, that He wants us to build strong families. Brethren, we're going to really be hit later on by Satan and every attack that Satan can throw at us in the church of God. I think a lot of you know that. I've said it before. Others have said it before. But one way to help at least is to have a strong family. And if you have a strong family... Or you have others in the church, if you're not married presently, may have good reason not to, some of you. At least you can make the church your larger family and have a deep sense of belonging and a deep sense of sharing, a deep sense of getting counsel and multitude of counsel, their safety. And you talk to other people, you talk to the ministers, you share your plans and hopes and dreams, you get help, you go to your family, you feel part of something. Then when something bad happens, when we're attacked, when some of us are killed or thrown in jail or even some horrible things have happened, as even happened recently, if you're part of the family, it'll help you weather the storm. It will help you weather the storm because you're part of the family and it helps you get the help you need mentally, emotionally, physically, in every way. You're part of the family and God wants us to be part of the family. That's so very, very important. I think I've told you before about my mother. She was one of eight children and Timothy Cohane from Ireland married my grandmother, whose maiden name was from Neil. I think her relatives went more back to England. And so I'm mainly English and 
Irish on my mother's side and mainly Welsh and Scottish on my father's side, but a Duke's mixture. But at any rate, there were seven girls and one boy in the family, and they had six girls, and they wanted a boy so bad that they kept right on, <laughs> and they finally had a boy, number seven. That was a good thing, I guess. But they, they thought, well, maybe we're going to have another one. So again, they had a child, and the eighth one turned out to be another girl, and then they quit. <laughs> seven girls, but they were a close family. They loved each other, took care of each other, and the oldest daughter, Ruby, worked and worked and worked in a bank, never got to graduate from college because she helped the younger children. And her father was a house painter, although he had a house painting business. My grandfather, Cohen, was mayor of this tiny city of Baldwin at one time and respected person in that little community, very little. But nevertheless, they all had to work to take care of each other. And then as each daughter would graduate from college... And college, Baker University, was featured by George Wills, you know, this famous writer for Newsweek magazine. He kind of gave a, a little interesting, to me, very meaningful. I think my sister Catherine sent it to me, this editorial about Baker University, right across the street from the Cohen house. They had a big house about the size of my present home, and they lived there. Ten of them slept in there. <laughs> but they'd walk right across the street, and there was the nice, uh, wholesome little college about the size of Ambassador College. There used to be about seven, eight hundred students. And all the girls except Ruby got to go there. The one boy, John, finally came along, number seven, and got to go there. So it wasn't expensive. They could live at home, at home and go across. Later, Aunt Helen, one of the older daughters, and they called the brain, she went on to Syracuse University in New York and got her Phi Beta Kappa, graduating with a master's degree in English literature, and my favorite aunt, Marjorie, uh, graduated also, got her master's degree from some other college and taught English down near Houston, Texas for years. So they were all in teaching in various ways, nearly all the sisters teaching English or literature or history or things like that. But they all took care of one another. And one got in trouble, I could give you example after example. The others would all pitch in. Family. My mother... When Raymond Manier and I were on a baptizing tour in 1951, I called in along the tour telling I was coming, found out, finding my mother had had this heart attack. So when we stopped by, she was in Freeman Hospital. Then we swung back through, which wasn't planned, but took some extra time and somehow rearranged and came back through to see her again. My grandmother was taking care of the family. Again, family, grandmother. You see, if you don't have a grandmother, you don't have family. If you just have two men, who's grandma? Who does these things? You think about all the involvement a family gets into. And my dad was kind of shaken because he didn't make very much money. Never did. He wasn't poor. We lived in the nice part of town, but we lived in the, in the less expensive part of the nice part of town. And my dad had to stretch things. And all of a sudden, one evening at dinner, we were there two or three nights, he had tears in his eyes which was very unusual for my father, the checks had started coming when we came back through on the second leg of our tour. Checks from Dorothy. Her husband was a banker. Checks from Helen. Her father was an official with Sheffield Steel, I think it was, or Bethlehem Steel. Checks from Marjorie, who was still teaching English. Checks from John, her brother, who was an executive with Remington Rand, 
Daddy hadn't requested anything. Family. No health plan. Nothing back then that I could always remember. My dad crying, which was very unusual. He taught me to suppress my emotions. And now in my old age, my emotions start coming out, which they didn't used to do. He was so moved that all her sisters and her one brother sent money, family, helped take care of the thing. He didn't have to suffer, didn't have to give up the house. And then mother was able to come back to the house and they were able to re, uh, well, to alter, to reconstruct the bedroom downstairs for my mother so she wouldn't have to go up and downstairs very often and take her afternoon rest down there and so on. But anyway, family is very, very important. And God ordained family. If you don't have family, you're missing something. Some of you maybe have to be single. Some people have had perhaps problems in their childhood, and I understand that, or unusual situations, and they don't have the family, and God understands. But if you can have the family, you might say, well, families create problems. I've seen suffering in my family. Well, I've seen suffering in my family, too. But I'd rather come home and smell a nice uh, steak cooking or some uh, pizza or some minestrone soup and walk in the door and have my wife kiss me, even if we have an argument later that night. And, of course, you know we never have any arguments. <laughs> I would rather have that than live alone. A thousand times rather have that. You have someone with whom to share everything. And you can have someone to argue with. That's fun, too, sometimes. You can't argue with yourself. You're just so lonely, you don't know what's happening. It's much better to have the family if you can possibly do it. So if you can break out of your singles pattern, again, I'm not preaching to you right here, but to young people around the world. I've seen a lot of people that they've had problems in their family. So many of God's people I've learned come from dysfunctional families. Why is that? Because God calls the weak of the world. He says that. I've had to realize that. He doesn't call the ones who are in wealthy part of town and have this great breed going right on back and the people that were millionaires and multimillionaires and so on. I remember reading about the background of Elliot Richardson, who was the Attorney General of the United States at the time of the Watergate thing, and he refused to fire Archibald Cox. You know, Nixon gave the orders. He wouldn't do it, so they fired him. Later on, he was appointed to other cabinet posts, and later on, he was made the United States ambassador, Her Majesty's government in England. I got to meet him a very and attend a, a, a luncheon at his home, in fact, and have dinner with him or lunch with him and get talked. Very wonderful man. You could just tell he just oozed uh, charm and uh, sophistication and culture. And I remember reading of his background. His father's a big shot. His grandfather's a big shot. All came down. They all graduated from Harvard or Yale and went back to Oxford and places in England and stuff like that. That's fine. God does not normally call those people. He calls other people. And we're it. Nobody's here but us chickens, right? <laughs> so let's understand that. But God has called us to be part of His family. So we don't have to feel inferior. We can begin to have the very nature of God in us. And you will find that even many of those rich people, they begin to have horrible problems, as you know, in their families. Some of them commit suicide 
no matter how many degrees they have, no matter how much money they have, and often they're miserable. And as the society gets worse and they imitate the society around them, more and more of them get miserable. So they're not better off in the end at all. We are. If we learn to walk with God, if we learn to do things His way, if we learn to build family the way God tells us to, among the many other things that God wants us to do, that's so important. But family is so helpful. And so my mother and her family, to me, helped exemplify that. They were not perfect, but they took care of one another. And I've never forgotten that example. And many of you have examples, perhaps, in your family like that. I can't give you all your examples, but think about those and appreciate the value of family. They're going to really help us, our families, and trials ahead. People are going to call me everything that they possibly can later on. They'll, I don't know what they'll do. They'll find something. They'll twist it and so on. But my family knows me. And my sister Catherine, she has a bad cold today, but I hope she lives many more years. She can say, she can say my brother Rod was always pushy. And he was going, driving out. He was in the golden gloves. And he wanted to do this and wanted to do that. But he was never, you know, a big whoremonger. And he was never a drunkard and never a thief and never this or that. She's known me for about... Uh, Seventy years, I guess, <laughs> almost. <laughs> anyway, better not give her age away. <laughs> so she's known me for a long time, and she knows that. And so that's good. Family can help support us when times are bad. And we can come home to my wife, and she knows me better than any human being for the last 27 and a half years. And she can tell you, yes, my husband's this and that, and he's strict, and these that. But see, what you see is what you get. He comes right at you in the sermons, and he comes right at me at home sometimes, too. (laughs) But he's sincere, and he's not a wife beater or drunkard or thief or whatever. Your family, she can help me and encourage me when I come home. We need to appreciate our family and all the things we have in a family and know how important that is to God. That can enrich our lives in many, many ways. A thousand different ways to have a family, and I hope we can all understand Think about the homosexual family. Most of you read some literature. Perhaps you haven't read it as much as I do because I read a lot. I want to know things because I've got to preach and teach and write about them. And I've read many articles who brought out from interviews with thousands of homosexuals, thousands of them, and taken a composite. They have said that the average homosexual has at least 40, I think it's 42 or 48 partners. It's in the 40s more than 40 partners in the course of his life. Forty different human beings he's having perverted sex with. Forty of them. How wonderful, how stable. What a comforting thought. What kind of disease germs are being passed around. What kind of perverted mind is that? Homosexuals marrying homosexuals. What's that going to prove or mean? Nothing. Causing more confusion. Trying to, of course, cover over and make look better, absolute perversion in the sight of Almighty God. Would these homosexual men who marry each other, would they risk their lives for the little boys or little girls, in fact? Some crazy judges let them even adopt little girls. Two men, perverts, perverts, living together, allowed to adopt little girls. What's going to happen to those little girls? If I were carnal and they tried to adopt my 
somehow daughter who is deserted by her mother or this or that if a divorce. I, but I would want to get a baseball bat. I say if I were carnal, but I probably would. I used to be pretty mean. I wouldn't mess around. I wouldn't want that at all. I'd go fight for her and get her away from them. It'd be awfully rough for any guy, a couple of men to live with her in that way. But the world goes along with this stuff. We have to realize the age we're living in and how sick this society is becoming. We've got to be an island of stability. We've got to build strong families, and those families can help us and help us emotionally, physically, financially, and spiritually when things get tough all over. Turn to Matthew now in your New Testament, brethren. Matthew chapter 19. Here in verse 1, it came to pass when Jesus had finished these things, he departed from Galilee, and great multitudes came. And the Pharisees came to him, testing him. The Pharisees were always trying to catch him, saying to him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? That's what the Pharisees were allowing him to do. That's what the world is allowing people to do today. Exactly the same thing. Nearly every church on earth does that, except the Catholics and one or two others. Just go ahead and divorce for almost any reason. And he answered, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? God had a purpose. He created them. He's the one who made us different. He's the one who created our emotions. He's the one who created our sexual organs. It's not nasty. God did that for a wonderful reason. He intended that. He planned it out. He wanted man and woman to come together. He told them the very first command, be fruitful, multiply, replenish the earth. God's not ashamed of sex and God's not ashamed of marriage. He planned that he wants it in marriage for a purpose, to build a home, to build a family. And he said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two, Jesus Christ said. But one flesh. Therefore, what God, who's involved? Not the state of California. Not the state of North Carolina. God. What God has joined together, let not man separate. There's a command from the one who created men and women, asking for God the Father. He's the one. God created all things by Jesus Christ. They said to him, Why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and put her away. They put a subtle twist on that. Just like the world often, I know, puts a subtle twist when they try to explain these things. But he immediately came back with the truth. Jesus said, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, because you're carnal, you're hard-hearted, you're selfish, lustful, unforgiving, because of that he permitted, he said, Moses didn't command anything. He permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, God's original intent, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality, or the Greek word is porneia, and porneia, brethren, as you know, means either sex before marriage, where a man comes to a woman and finds out that she slept with a whole bunch of people, or the woman comes to man, works both ways, and found out he's had a whole bunch of different women, and so on. And they decide not to marry if they find that out in their courtship or at the very beginning of marriage, or else pornea can include gross immorality, repeated adultery, or perversion, which would include homosexuality. 
So except for that, if a person divorces and marries another, commits adultery, and whoever marries who, who is divorced, obviously for some wrong reason, commits adultery. And his disciples said, if such is the case of the man with his wife, if marriage is that binding, uh, it's better not to marry. If We have to live up to that kind of standard. But he said, all cannot accept this saying. I think Jesus, frankly, was kind of having a little subtle sarcasm here with I can't prove this, but that's my opinion, having taught the Gospels for many years. He said, okay, fellas, everybody can't do that, for their eunuchs who were made incest from their womb, they had an operation, and their eunuchs who made themselves eunuchs by men, that is, they were forcibly made eunuchs, and there are eunuchs who made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. They've decided, like Paul did, to do without a wife because they had to travel so much and carry on and so on. He was able to receive it. Let him receive it. So he's saying if you're a eunuch, maybe you don't have to. But otherwise, if you're going to marry, you're going to marry on these terms. You're going to marry to stay married. We're not watering it down for you guys. Anyway, Jesus taught about the binding quality of marriage. Marriage is to last it's to provide the people involved a sense of security, a sense of stability, a sense of unconditional love. You love your wife, you cherish her, you forgive her and forgive her and forgive her and forgive her. And the wife loves her husband and she's to cherish him and respond to him, respect him. And she's to forgive him and forgive him and forgive him. Over and over again, because in marriage you will hurt each other. And you have to do that. I know Mr. and Mrs. Pyle and Mr. and Mrs. Party in there and others, I can't think of everybody, but out in Pasadena may have heard this sermon. Dr. Z, we used to call him. <laughs> Dr. Zimmerman, very fine minister, very fine man, gave a very touching sermon in the house of God, as we called it, the auditorium in Pasadena, about marriage or something to do with that at least. And he commented on the fact that he was having to take care of his wife. His wife, I think her name was Bertie, you know, as a nickname by that time, was in a wheelchair. And he had to sort of help her eat, I think, and help bathe her and help take care of her in every way because she was pretty crippled up. And he had to take care of her continually. But he said, you know, for most of them married, she took care of me and I'm just giving back a small thing because from the time we were married for year after year, she gave and gave and gave and gave and gave. And he went on about seven or eight gaves there. I never forget that. She was helping him. She was putting up with him. She was feeding him. And maybe he, like me, was a little pushy. Maybe he was a little hard when he was younger. And she gave and gave and gave and gave. And now it was his opportunity to give back. A little bit. Very touching the way he explained it. In marriage, you give to each other. In marriage, you take care of each other. I've noticed as I've gotten older, a lot of you know, if you've been down to these, uh, well, travel agents or something, one time we've seen them in traveling, and you often, uh, you often see a whole bunch of middle-aged people. They're in their late 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s, and they're getting on this big tour bus. And they're often, you know, and they're 55 to... 95, let's say, whatever they are. And you notice how they do? My wife and I have often commented on it. They kid around with each other, and they're, they don't have to prove anything. The women didn't have to fix their hair real perfect, and the men aren't wearing the latest cologne, and they just love each other. The men and women, they kind of bump into each other, and they have some friends, and they kind of hug the others in other groups, because, again, you know, the get-up-and-go may not have totally got up and went, but they're not, uh, not going to be running around as much 
you know, as they used to. And they all understand that. They have a kind of a quiet warmth and sense of uh, peace. They take care of each other. Old men take care of their wives. And more often, older women will take care of their husbands because so many men marry a woman 3 to 13 or 15 years younger, some of us even. (coughs) (laughs) And so the woman has to take care of us as we get real old. And she'll do that because she loves us. And we'll do that because we love her. And we've grown together. You share everything. Your plans, your hopes, your dreams. At night you talk over the hurts of the day. And you talk over the triumphs of the day. You talk over any misunderstandings and all the other things. And you grow together. And as you get old, you appreciate that. Another human being with whom to share everything. I tell Cheryl that if she would die and I would come home to our nice house, it's the nicest, largest house that I've ever owned. I've lived in three college homes that were bigger. But we appreciate the house. And most of you, about, not to say most of you, perhaps almost half of you have been there and seen our home. It's not extravagant, nothing like Mr. Armstrong's house or even other houses the college used to have where I lived. But we're happy for it, happy with it. But if I came home to that house and she was gone, it would seem like an empty tomb. I would start to turn and say something. The walls would echo back. How completely empty my life would be. And she said the same thing. Marriage is so important, and marriage helps knock the rough edges off your personality if you learn to be a giver, and you learn to take correction, and you learn to take instruction from your mate, and you learn to forgive your mate, and the mate forgives you, and you grow together, and you become a more balanced human being as you go through that process. You've got to do that, brethren, as best you can in marriage, and all of us try to, need to try to have that kind of marriage, and to give, and to give, and to give. Back in Ephesians chapter 5, Ephesians now, chapter 5, notice, breaking into the thought, Paul tells all of us to submit to one another, verse 22, in the fear of God. Verse 20, that's 21, verse 22, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. A wife is to submit. We're not bashful about saying that. God says that all the way through the Bible. Submit to your husband. As to the Lord, don't do it grudgingly, saying, well, yes, but just learn to do it in the right way. For the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church. You see, marriage pictures the relationship between Christ and the church. That's an important thing to think about. And he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. And we know the one exception would be, of course, Acts 5.29, where Paul said, or Peter said, we must obey God rather than man. If your husband commands you to commit adultery or start some wife-swapping or to go drink too much and get drunk or kill someone, of course, you don't do that. But in all normal things, a wife should follow her husband's lead and submit to her husband as to the Lord. Therefore, as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives. Sometimes a wife will more normally love her husband because women have those emotions to love and to care for, nurturing. But husbands are commanded, love your wives. Don't get bugged at them so easily. Love them. Just as Christ loved the church, he gave himself for it that he might sanctify it and present it to himself, you see, a glorious church, 
not having a spot or wrinkle or any such thing. So husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies, as part of themselves. They're part of you, man. They belong as part of your own body. So he who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, you know, if you hit your thumb with a hammer, then your whole body goes into action, you know. Your shoulders hunch and your eyes bulge out. Wow, I hurt my thumb, part of my body. Pretty precious. Your big toe, you drop a piece of a heavy anvil on your big toe and your whole body bends over and, you know, everything else happens. Your breath goes, your heart pumps, everything. Same thing with your wife. She's part of you and you've got to think of her that way. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. So that analogy is to teach us something. We've got to learn to carry that out in every way that we can in our physical lives. We've got to learn to care for one another, to serve one another in marriage. In Romans 13, turning now to Romans chapter 13, you'll notice in verse 8, Owe no one anything except to love one another, for he who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandment, you shall not commit adultery, you will not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet. He's talking about the commandments toward men. And if there's any other commandment, are all summed up in this one saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. What's he doing? He's quoting here Leviticus 19, verse 18. God gave that way back in the Old Testament. Leviticus 19, verse 18. But Christ magnified it, and the whole New Testament magnifies it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And brethren, I submit to you, there's no better place to learn how to live that commandment than in marriage. Because you're living with another human being in a sense, all day long. Now, you may be gone to work, but you better be thinking about them and concerned and loyal to them in your mind and heart. And then so much of the day, if you're away nine or ten hours, the rest of the 24 hours, you're with them most of the time. If you have a good marriage, you're with them most of the time at least. And so you can best learn and practice giving, helping, serving, forgiving another human being, cherishing another human being, thinking about your wife, how can I love her? How can I help her? How can I enrich her life? How can I make her feel more fully happy? How can I help her better get in God's kingdom? How can I make her help achieve her plans and hopes and dreams within God's law and within the money I have, of course, and all that? How can I best do that where I am now? And the wife should think, how can I best serve my husband? How can I help him? How can I encourage him? How can I inspire him? How can I cook him good meals so he's in good health, keep his house clean and neat, and help him in every way to function as a human being and as a Christian, and pray for him and encourage him in that way all day long, each of you helping, giving, forgiving, putting up with, serving one another, serving one another, giving to one another. It's more blessed to give than to receive. Acts 20, verse 35. Again, no place to learn that than in marriage. It's more blessed to give than to receive. And in marriage, as Dr. Z said, you learn to give and give and give and give. And here's an opportunity to do it all day long to another human being. In Hebrews chapter 1, Hebrews 
chapter 1, notice here an important principle. It speaks of God, how in time past He spoke to the fathers. Yes, fathers they're called. Again, bring in the family relationship, the ancient prophets by the prophets. Has in these last days spoken to us by His Son. Right away, a family enters into it. God's Son, whom He's appointed heir of all things, through whom also He made the worlds. God made the worlds, not through some angel or some being over here, but through the very one He calls His Son, who is the complete personification of God. And He says a little later, having become so much better, verse 4, than angels, as He has by inheritance obtained an excellent, a more excellent name than they. Christ the Son is to be far above all angels. He was made God's Son. And you and I are about to be made full sons of God and bear His name. For to which of the angels did He ever say, You are my Son today, have I begotten you? So all these things are involved. Family. Then over in chapter uh, 2, Hebrews chapter 2, and beginning in verse 5 here, uh, for he has not put the world to come, we call it tomorrow's world, of which we speak in subjection to angels. But one testified in a certain place, saying, What is man that you're mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? Why is God concerned with us weak human beings down here like so many ants on this little planet out in the darkness of space? You made him a little lower, or for a little while lower, than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor and set him over the works of your hands. You've made all things in subjection under his feet. Why? Because we're made sons of God. God gives everything to members of his family. You see, a man will will everything he has to his wife, or his wife is dead to his children, his sons, his family, family, family. That's what he has to do with all the way through here. In verse 9, we see Jesus made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he but the grace of God might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things, and by whom are all things. He created everything in bringing many sons to glory. Sons of God. Christ helps bring us to glory. He's our merciful and faithful high priest, guiding us, guiding the church, interceding before God the Father, saying, Father, I was down there in the flesh. I know how hard it is. Helping us, guiding us, guiding the church, and bringing many sons to glory to make the author of their salvation perfect through sufferings. Yes, he had to be made perfect through sufferings. We have to be made perfect through sufferings. Some of us have suffered a lot through our lives and being hurt and put down and have physical ailments. Many of us have been hurt very recently by the death of a very beloved minister, Mr. John O'Gwen. We don't totally understand it, but we know God is our Father. We know God says He'll never leave us nor forsake us. We know Mr. O'Gwen's fruit shows that we will see Him in a few years and we'll get to talk it over. He is part, will be part of God's family, and we will be part of God's family and knowing that big picture, always having our mind on that big picture, we can go ahead because we're sons of God. We're brothers of John O'Gwen, brothers of Jesus Christ, begotten sons of the family of God. For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things and by all things, in bringing many sons to glory, he had to go through sufferings for both 
uh, he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified, which is us, are all of one, for which reason he's not ashamed to call them brethren. He's our brother. I will declare your name, he says, to my brethren. So we are Christ's brothers, full brothers, a family, a God's son, and an older brother, younger brother, full brother relationship with Jesus Christ. Back in Ephesians one more time. And while you're turning there, I'd like to give another example that I've always remembered and felt very deeply about. Back in New York many years ago, we were staying, my wife and me, at the uh, special unit in the Regency Hotel on Park Avenue that Mr. Armstrong kept. And we were able to stay there because no one else was staying there. And Dwight Eisenhower had died and it was showing some of the pictures about his life. And I guess I was emotional that day for some reason, traveling or whatever, but it really hit me. And at the end of all these things about the man who had helped train many other troops, who led Overlord, the greatest invasion force in human history, attacking the Normandy beaches, who had become president of Columbia University after the war, then was appointed the commanding general of the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, who later became president of the United States. At the end of his life, he was going to be buried back at the Eisenhower Library in Kansas, my mother's home state. And he, before his death, had asked that his son, not his grown son, but a son that none of us had ever heard of, or I certainly hadn't, be buried there with him. A little boy that died within a few days after his birth. But his father never, never forgot that son. How much more will God never, ever forget us? God is the author of family. We're his sons. He will never leave us, never forsake us. And we've got to never leave or never forsake our wife or husband or our children, you know, unless there's some very direct biblical reason in some rare case to do so. We've got to have that powerful loyalty. How much more, God? Turn in in Ephesians here one more time. Ephesians chapter 5, brethren. And now let's finish this chapter. I stop with verse 30. Let's turn to verse 31. For this reason, that is marriage, family. Let's build strong families. A man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they too shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery. But you think it's a mystery, but that's the spiritual part of it. But I speak concerning Christ and the church to understand that our physical families exemplify that. In this life, we're to try to have that type of attitude, a complete submission to Christ, of love and everlasting loyalty and purity, giving, helping, serving in the family of God. This is a great mystery. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his wife, even as himself. And let the wife see that she respects or reverences her husband. God wants us to act like the family of God because we will ultimately be that family. 
And God is building us into a family. And we've got to learn those lessons now and forever.